0: Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. All right, Steve, Paul, welcome back.
1: Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're happy to be with you.
0: And I'm happy that you're here, and I'm happy that we were able to watch Wally. Uh, which I think is a great film. It's uh, one of, I, I'll, I'll say it's probably my favorite romance, uh, and I, I realize it doesn't usually get categorized as such, and I, I'm also aware that the fact that my favorite romance involves pixelated robots probably reveals more about my social life than it should, uh, but, uh, but I enjoyed it quite a lot, uh, and I, I'm curious to explore it both uh, economically and culturally with you. What did you all think? Well,
1: it's, I, I thought it was childish. <laughs> I suppose it's a children's movie, but uh, uh, I see a trend here. We just did a Lego movie, and, you know, Wally makes the Lego movie look like Citizen Kane, as far as I'm
0: concerned. (laughs) Uh, Paul, Paul, I want to start a spin-off series with you called uh, Paul Cantor reviews Disney children's movies, <laughs> where where all of them are like this. Really, wasn't sufficiently mature. I just didn't think that it had enough depth.
2: Well, uh, to... yeah, <laughs> you know, though, Andrew, I think I think if you view it like you do as a romance, that's going to be the best way to to watch it. Frankly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and even that, as far as I'm concerned, isn't very good. But you know, it's it's it's. I, Pixar, I mean, technically, right? Pixar is amazing, and yes. and, <laughs> and the ability to make these make these animated robots, which is two levels, right? A robot and an animated robot, you know, you make you know, sort of the ability to express emotion through them and all that. It's amazing technical thing, but. But I, you know, I just wanted to choke the story. I just—it's—it's yeah. it's so problematic on so many levels. Well, I,
0: I guess it's not the—it's not the story that I enjoy so much. What I like about it is that that typically when you're when you're reading a novel or you're watching a movie, uh, characters have to be nuanced for them to be believable. Uh, if if you've got a character that's one hundred percent loving without a single flaw, uh, it, it irks me normally because I, I find that to be a very cartoonish figure. For some reason, if it's a non-human doing human things—I'm not bothered by that. So Wally can be this completely selfless, loving, starstruck individual uh, who appears to have no flaws whatsoever, and and, uh, and I like that. There's kind of a a um, I don't know an, an innocence and a uh, emotional simplicity to it that I find
2: appealing. I, I think, uh, yeah. In some sense, on the other hand, you know, he's a good candidate for hoarders. After all, <laughs> uh, he does—he does seem to have a little problem, you know, uh, <laughs> getting rid of things. Yeah, that is true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, one, I mean, it's
1: really the trick of the film yeah. uh, to make you interested in a character who would normally be boring. Right. The whole idea here is, oh, it's a robot that has sentimental feelings. It's like the movie Warm Bodies, where it's just the Romeo and Juliet story, except one of the lovers is a zombie. And so it suddenly becomes interesting. Oh, zombies can love too. Oh, robots can love too. But I had the same reaction I did to uh, the uh, uh, Lego movie that, you know, this is a marvelous exercise in technology that's being used to attack technology,
0: yeah, I, I did find that kind of bizarre because when, when you watch the credits at the end where uh, yes, the, yes, yes. The, the, you know the, the, the yes. people realize that the earth can now be repopulated they, they need to get down and dig and you know really give up all this uh, all this robotic stuff that's happened they they are using the robots to help them go planting and things It's sort of this weird like cyborg amish culture that that is alluded to
2: I mean there's another tension at the heart of this film too, right which is the sort of sense that 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 on that ship or at least that society kind of became so wealthy that all they did was you know sit around and and be entertained right those you know sitting in chairs all day long and running through the ship and things happened to them and sort of this vision of a of a society, or at least the refugees of a society that have become so wealthy, you know, there's no real discussion at all about where the resources that they consume come from. Let's put that aside for a minute, mm-hmm. right? But but the, the notion that when we get so rich, all we'll do is sit around and consume all day long. When the reality is, when we get rich, what do we do all day long? We make movies like Wall-E, right? <laughs> that's that's what we do. We 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 stop. The fewer humans it takes to produce physical stuff, the more we can turn our attention to. Produce Producing Art and literature and, and games and, and entertaining ourselves. I mean, that's to me the sort of ironic tension at the heart of this movie. It's a it's a critique of implicit critique of the very society that made that made that movie possible. Right.
1: So exactly. I mean, the greatest progress in humanity is that fewer and fewer people are involved in farming. That's right. Uh, That we don't have to do this backbreaking work just to keep ourselves alive. That, in fact, we have machines to do most of it. It's a kind of romanticizing of farming uh, that goes back to the... Uh, English romantic poets in the early 19th century, and it's so wrong. Yep. Uh, It forgets how brutal farm life was before machines. Now, Thomas Hardy in his novel Tess of the D'Urbervilles shows us how horrible it was that it was 16-hour days in the English cold, and that was what was Uh, soul-destroying. Right, right.
0: I, I, think you're, I think you're right. Here in, here in New York where I live, uh, people have an incredible appreciation for uh, locally grown, you know, or organic, uh, artisanal food uh, hopefully grown on a roof somewhere in Brooklyn by a hipster. Uh, and right. it's, it's very different. Like I have a little garden, but it's not the same thing having a garden than it is being exactly.
1: a farmer. Exactly. What right. I tell my students is you're mistaking farming for gardening right they're two very different things
2: and and my line is we we tried going local once it was called the <laughs> middle ages right it didn't work very it was called the caveman yeah go back go back there too yeah i mean so that that i think that romantic i think that's a really the paul's point about the romantic romanticizing of farm life i mean this is an old you know an old trope in in lots of anti-industrial anti-capitalist literature uh for you know oftentimes uh Things written about farm life by people who never experienced it and, and and romanticized it even at the time, but we look back it was it was always better back then? And no, it wasn't actually. Uh, and and we have this we have this time you know now when when we as Paul said at one point, 200 years ago about ninety percent of humans were involved in agriculture. The turn of the twentieth century about forty percent of humans worked in agriculture. Forty percent of Americans I should say, and now it's under two percent. And and yet food is more abundant than ever, and human labor is freed to do all these wonderful things like. Make Pixar movies,
0: yeah, and, and actually, progress. I I think that's a wonderful point to make um, that that we have gotten incredibly efficient with agriculture to everyone's benefit, and I, I want to use that as a jumping point because in many other films there's this I, there's this Malthusian idea that we're going to run out of resources and we're we're going to have too many people and we're not going to be able to feed ourselves, and what what has always happened is that the more wealthy a society becomes and the better the technology becomes, the fewer people. Are actually born into it because when you 're a, a agricultural society, you need lots of farm hands around you probably also have a higher infant mortality rate, so you need backups on top of that uh, and as, as societies get wealthier they, they tend to drop um, now on that note though uh, in Wally they 're not running out of resources they've they 've overpolluted their world and uh, i could I could talk for a great length about how we 're never going to run out of resources, and i, I don 't think we will because we will always innovate our way out but in in e there we 've talked a little bit about this sort of uh, you know, slothful consumerism that that they indicate sets in when uh, when when society becomes so decadently wealthy. But at the same time, they're poisoning themselves and and ruining their planet by consuming and producing so much. And I, I wonder if if that struck either of you, and if you disagree with that.
1: Well, here's my take on it. Uh, Instead of sending the people into space, why didn't they send the garbage into space? If they had this great space technology, why send the people off while the garbage accumulates on the Earth? Who knows? This may be the solution someday. Uh, uh, One thing, I mean, uh, the notion that technology... Uh, can't be the solution is really the problem with a lot of this Malthusian uh, thinking. Technology has solved many of the problems of pollution. And again, we forget, we romanticize the past that was unpolluted. Uh, Without getting too graphic about it, think of what, say, the streets of New York or London looked looked like when The horse was the major mode of transportation. We think the car is this great source of pollution. Well, there were forms of pollution uh, in horse-drawn vehicles. uh, (laughs) So... Uh, there, you know, uh, 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 the history of the world is not a simple history of things getting more polluted, yep. as you would think uh, uh, from the sort of Hollywood vision of it. Uh, very often, our technologies have helped uh, to grapple with the problem of, tech, uh, of pollution, and that's where the film let me down.
2: Right, and, and to. And to bring that literally home, right, one of the things we forget is the ways in which people heated their houses historically, yes. you know, often by burning manure or burning wood inside the house. Houses were smoky and gross. And, you know, even if you were running candles, you were choking on smoke all the time. And now our houses are this sparkling, clean, pollution-free place. I mean, we have this – we've been we, – you know, we, we have been con- – sort of, you know, uh, conditions, the too strong a word, but we're so used to thinking of pollution in terms of the image of the smokestack or the car exhaust that, that, that we don't think about, as Paul said, the streets of New York, we don't think about, you know, sewage before indoor plumbing. And all these other kinds of things that were equally forms of pollution uh, that, that, in fact, industrialization and capitalism have gotten rid of and given us less noxious forms than the ones we had earlier.
0: I think you're exactly right. And, and that's something that we can actually uh, contemplate in our society where we have the benefit of fairly clean air compared to where we were during the Industrial Revolution and before that. Uh, but when you look at most of the pollution-related deaths, actually an overwhelming amount of pollution-related deaths globally are not taking place in industrialized countries uh, or countries currently going through the industrial revolution in their, their respective places. Um, it's it's happening from indoor pollution that you just alluded to. It's uh, in, in countries that are still very, very poor uh, and, and underdeveloped, they are, are literally burning dung in their house and it gets into their lungs. And uh, if, if we wanted to help people, actually the best thing we could possibly
2: do on a pollution level is grow the economy. Yep. That, absolutely, and again, going back to the film, right? That's that's the missing. That's part of the missing piece here. I mean, what what drove me crazy is the is and it's uh, you see it in these you know films where the where the environmentalism of this sort is 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 just kind of taken as a given. The notion that there was this you when know, one big company that sort of took over the economy and the planet, right? A theme we also saw in the Lego Movie. Yes. Um. You know, but but so that vision is 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 always there. Which is completely ignorant of the economics of that and why that's not going to happen. Um, but then you know all 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 that company does is sort of fritter away its own resources. There's no notion that that any that it it's you know that it might lose by polluting. There's no sense of the you know role that institutions in society play in, in such as property rights and preventing this. It's just a simple story. We got you know some giant corporation takes over world, gets greedy, ruins it. Right? I mean that's that's the story. And and the and the reality is. Is just so much more complex and frankly interesting than that. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Uh, like, I, mean, you, I, just, you, I was thinking earlier, just real quick. You know, when we think about these dystopian sort of movies, I'm not sure anybody's actually done it any better than Soylent Green back in the '70s, which is a movie we might consider talking about it someday because that's a really interesting treatment I mean, of that.
0: Is, that is the Malthusian fever dream, yeah. is it not? I mean, that, yeah, is, that is sort of yeah. the epitome of Malthusianism. Yeah. Um, and, well, I, I th- love I, I, You all, I think, make an excellent point that that. Uh, our history is not just a series of increasing pollution. Uh, I read the other day that, I don't remember the exact statistic, but it was something to the effect that Beijing, which is this, Beijing is this terribly smoggy place. I was there a few years ago, and I could literally see pollution inside of a mall, uh, just on the upper stories. And that's still about three times cleaner than London was 150 years ago. Um, So, you know, there is this kind of hump period you go through. So uh, there are all those, those good moments that happen uh to to back up a little bit because I, I think we're all on board with the same idea that, that technology uh which is aided by wealth will generally solve most of these problems um it being a kid's film i don't know if they were there, there definitely is a lot of anti-corporate um, and anti-business imagery going on in there but it seemed to me that the, the big values that they were trying to espouse were um that rampant consumerism's bad that sloth and gluttony are bad and uh um, I, I suppose that you know pollution is is also bad, and when it, I, I agree with all of those things on a base level uh, and i i 'm curious is your problem with the, the film on a you know on a on a values level that these these grim futures would never come to take place or or uh, do you do you sympathize with the dislike of consumerism or sloth or gluttony or any of those things
1: you know i think it 's really unfair to consumerism <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: uh, uh, you know it uh, um, there 's this whole uh, take on capitalism, this Protestant ethic idea uh, that uh, you know the the industrial revolution was uh, uh, driven by uh, the producers uh, there 's a wonderful book it 's called the Birth of consumer society uh, it 's McKendrick and I think J.H. Plum, it suggests that the the Industrial Revolution was consumer-driven. Uh, and indeed, I'd say that in general, the, the economic growth is driven by people's desires. But the idea that there's something wrong with people wanting things, uh, in fact, it's what makes us human beings. It's what makes us achieve things. There's things wrong with what individual consumers choose to have, but the idea that Everybody simply chooses uh, to get fat and lazy. It just—I'm uh, a—I can't stand it when I look around society and see how healthy people are now. They all work <laughs> out. They all are in shape uh, now. I'm at a university where the students are particularly athletic, and they're all marvelously muscle toned, So on, you know, yeah, lie down for a while.
2: <laughs> some, uh, a little sloth would do. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Well, on that note, statistically. I mean, we we are a very hardworking society. Like my, yeah. the, the United States. I want to say the average American works longer hours per year than any other industrialized nation, including Japan, which tends to be the kind of you know ah oh, the Asian work model. Like, well, actually they have they have more vacation days. They have more more days off per year. Americans work very very hard. Um, we as, do, but. I- so
2: they want stuff yeah right I mean right and, and, and again I two, two things on this I think maybe three I think Paul's right I mean you know we, we we consumerism my students use that phrase all the time right as they as they click it out on their iPod out on, on their iPad right so you know I mean yeah we, we buy stuff to make our lives better off we you know consumerism is what enables us to feed our kids and and wear cleaner clothing and live in nicer houses I mean I, I just I don't the, the value that somehow says we have that that we have to be these essential right is just you know is 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 absolutely is absolutely crazy uh, and and I and Americans do work hard but I think it's important to note that if you look at the data the average work week for Americans has dropped you know steadily over the 20th century we actually have you know more time off more days off and if you think about the fact that we start work later and retire earlier and live longer Americans these days spend a much smaller percentage of their total hours alive at work. And that's a good thing as we were t- talking earlier about the a- about agriculture, right? If we can live as well as we do and not have to work as many hours and we can spend those those hours, you know, doing all kinds of things. By the way, consumerism includes going to the opera, right? I mean, you know, all, all the high class kinds of things too. Um, so i again i just i don't i 'm with paul i don't get that attack on consumer culture and and I think that's that's what you know that 's what enables us to 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 build lives that have meaning for us is the ability to consume those things though that said, I think it's important when we think about larger economic issues that we not then draw the conclusion that what that what we want to do to drive economic growth is stimulate consumption right because at the end of the day, it is as Paul said the desires of consumers to have things that 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 is a key part of of any sort of economy and growth, but we also have to remember producers have to produce those things and they have to invest, and they have to have an environment in which they can think that they will make they will profit from doing it so so we can't just think treat consumption as the kind of you know everything of economic policy.
1: Well, of course, it's a joke even to say that we need to stimulate consumption. Right. People will consume as much as they can. Yeah, uh, uh, It's just we have to make sure there's an economic setup so that those things will be produced, as you said.
2: And it, uh, yeah. And even that language of stimulus, you know, as if as if we were robots, right? As yeah, if we were yeah, me- mechanical yeah. devices where you push and we'll consume. That's not what it is. Consumption has meaning to us in, in the same way that production does. I mean, entrepreneurs take great love and, and joy out of the work they do. And for us, the things that we own are, are very meaningful to us. Yeah, and frankly, all stimulus means is to create money artificially
1: to give people the illusion that yes. they can consume more Yep, and makes them, in fact, eat up what little capital they have.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you're right about all these things. I'll, I'll add to that that with, with the consumerism, I I don't know if a, a fixation in your personal life on on merely acquiring material goods is a good thing that said, though, I still want to have nice clothes. I still want to have an iPhone. Um, I, my, my life is not about acquiring stuff, but that's certainly a component of it. And I, I find that most people, when they're involved in, in uh, screeds against consumerism, are usually carrying an iPhone or or, or some very nice piece of technology. I, if, if an Amish person started lecturing me, I would have to give them credit uh, that they, they were really, really eschewing the trappings of consumerism. But you know, if you're if you're writing your blog post via a Mac. Uh, or or whatever, some expensive gadget, and you're doing it at Starbucks, and you're talking about how you think material possessions are terrible. Uh, okay, you're you're still part of it, uh, and and this this kind of reminds me of another thing. Since we, we can kind of swing back towards the environment now, uh, I I went to a talk with uh, T Boone Pickens a few years ago, and uh, somebody um, I think lambasted him for not being an environmentalist, and his his response was that everybody's an environmentalist until you ask them to spend a thousand dollars on the environment. That nobody's an environmentalist.
2: Yeah. Uh, but- uh, and uh, another great example of that—I don't know if you've seen this wonderful uh, TED Talk—the uh, 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 on on uh, Hans Rosling on the magic washing machine, right? Which, if you haven't seen it, you must. Uh, and one of the things that Rosling points out in that is—is is, he—you know—he has all—he says I have all these students who are hardcore green environmentalists, but when you ask them, do they hand wash their own clothes? Not a hand <laughs> with their own clothes up. Right? I, I, so, so you know. You know,
0: that's, a, that's a wonderful point and, and one that I think is – I've, I've been contemplating this recently because it does come up in New York where I live uh, quite a lot. I, I think that uh, a mean way to describe it would be environmental fetishism. Um, a, a, a perhaps more accurate way is I, I think that every culture has little uh, little social markers that it uses to indicate that we're good people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I find with the environment, I'm, I'm very much intrigued in that most people I talk to, I, I think their reason faculty shut down, regardless of what side of the debate they're on. And uh, with, with my liberal friends, when I talk to them, um, I cannot communicate the, the concept of trade-offs. Uh, for instance in wally they 're surrounded by all this junk and all, all this trash and garbage right and, and the presumably if they 'd recycled things, everything would have been better. Well, you know when you recycle newspaper, you produce wastewater from that so it 's arguable whether recycling newspaper is doing anything good besides the fact that we we get our paper from domestically grown uh, trees that are on plantations which are regularly restocked so it 's questionable whether that 's um, Actually, affecting anything with newspaper recycling, but most people that do it, I, I think, feel a spiritual compulsion to do it, and, and a sort of belief that if they don't, they're bad people. Uh, and it's, the, it's disposed, displaced Puritanism. Yes,
1: uh, they've lost their religious faith, but they still have this vague sense that to be good, you must renounce things. So we'll renounce junk instead of
2: renouncing sin. Uh, I, and, and I would yeah. one. One other thing to add to that, there's a whole interesting story you can tell about the history of industrial processes yeah. that looks. I mean, why 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 would industrial producers want to throw stuff away that's potentially valuable, right? And 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 you you know, so many products we have today have come about because, that were once waste, right? That that producers have figured out how to turn the waste into something valuable, um, and there's all these kinds of market entrepreneurs and processes that that dispose of waste and turn it into other valuable things, right? So the, the question is, you know, when we think about this society that just threw all this, you know, piled up all this junk and junk and junk, it, it just ignores the question of, of, that there, if those things had value, why wasn't someone interested in trying to turn them, you know, do something with them and turn them into something else? That's the history we know. Yeah, I'll give you a good example from
1: the history of literature. The great uh, boom in novel writing and in general and uh, reading in the 19th century was fueled by the fact that the new uh, clothing industry generated a lot of rags, uh, and that were, those rags were used to make paper. Yeah. Paper became okay. incredibly cheaper uh, starting in the 19th century because it was recycled rags uh, right out of the cotton industry. And this weird conjunction congen- between an economic development and this cultural boom.
2: Uh, that's a great, perfect example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Exactly.
1: That's why I gave it.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, I guess the final thing we—I think we've talked about this a little bit before—but I'm I'm curious, uh, both of you being very free market and and being, I I think, in the Austrian school of economics. uh, we, we've been focusing on the, the physical objects that they leave behind, and I, I completely agree with you that almost certainly somebody would figure out how to make robots out of all the parts laying around or, or additional spaceships or, or something. Um, say that they're producing toxins. They're producing pollution in the air. They're producing water toxins. Um, how, how are people going to deal with this uh, in, in a, uh, you know, a, a free market environment, negative externalities? Yeah
2: it's well it's a challenge because it depends on whether you can identify the source of either pollution that makes it a lot easier right if you know who's polluting if you really have a society in which property rights are meaningful um, if, if my you know if my polluted water spills over onto your land I've, it's a tort right I mean it's a violation of your property rights and I have every right to to, to you know sue for damages or get you to just you know to cease and desist um, it's harder obviously with the air though if you can identify the source of the pollution that's great but if you can't then then you you know then you've got more more challenging problems to, uh, uh, and I actually think that some sort of global scale environmental problems are, are, are a real challenge but but sort of more local ones, the factory polluting the river, that's it's pro- it's a property rights question. And normally they're getting away with it because the property rights aren't clear, particularly in, in whatever's serving as the as the disposal unit for that for that uh that, that pollution.
1: Well, yeah, this is a very complicated matter because, in fact, the English common law tradition had ways of dealing with these issues. But it was actually government intervention in the 19th century on behalf of corporations, uh, the concept of limited liability, uh, uh, laws, uh, legislative decisions that made it impossible to sue people that uh, created a lot of these environmental problems.
0: Uh, many of which, if I'm not mistaken, have caps on how much they can be sued for, right? Like with uh, those the and things like that, there's a certain yeah, threshold you can't a, go past. Yeah, it.
1: look at the BP situation in the Gulf. I mean, very often it's government, as in so many cases, very often it's government intervention, crony capitalism on, on behalf of corporations that shields them from their what would be their normal common law liability. Um, so...
0: Yeah. with 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 uh, with a BP oil spill just out of curiosity if, if we were to switch to this uh, you know completely property rights based system for dealing with negative externalities, would the only people have been able to sue BP would have been the people along the coast would there have been a, any entity which could have sued them for uh, marine life killed in the gulf
2: if 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 those if that you know if you can imagine a world in which parts of the water are effectively owned because people have say tagged fish in them uh, as their property. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting research on fisheries and how you might set up property rights in the water. So it's not out of the question that you could do that. But in general, you know, uh, nobody, no, you know, do, is there anyone who speaks for the trees? That's another movie we might talk about one of these days. Um, uh, the answer is no, but what you hope is the best thing that can happen to the trees and the fish and everything else is in fact to be owned and to be treated as an asset that whose value can be conserved over time
0: yeah you know i, I don't know i don't know if i 'm with you all the way to say like deep ocean or or in international waters because I think that would be very difficult to assign property rights to yeah. but when you're when you're dealing with say endangered species in africa there there are places in Zimbabwe where they 've established uh, private they're either photo safaris or literally just like safaris where you go hunting. But the result is that when you when you put a a private profit incentive um, to a, a person that has personal responsibility for something, uh, it is not in their best interest to let it die out. Uh, and so you you know we're, we're not running out of cows in the United States, for instance, uh, even That's though right. we, we eat exactly. quite a lot of them because they're they're a, a source of profit. Whereas when something is uh, kind of e- ephemerally uh, owned by the collective, kind of maybe. Um, the downside is that nobody's really personally vested with taking care of it. And, it's called the and- tragedy of the commons. Yep,
2: yep. Uh, and 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 then and the worst thing you can do is make something an endangered species, right? And, and penalize people for. For for you know for for having it on their land, because then as soon as someone finds it on their land, it's what they call shoot, shoot, shovel, and shut up right <laughs> so you know that because you don't want anyone to find you've got that species on your land so there yeah, it's it, uh, you, you, you mean you,
0: as opposed to poaching, you mean like uh, against, yeah. against the it's, law to have an endangered species for yeah whatever right. or
2: that, that if they find the species on your land, you might lose your land because now it becomes a you know a, a, a reason oh, to I, I see species. what you're saying so, if, if, yeah, I'm, so uh,
0: if i'm if I'm living just outside the Amazon rainforest and an endangered species start moving into my property. Um, I, I have a financial incentive to kill them and dispose yep. of the evidence to make sure yep. that it's not. I see. Shoot. It's very interesting. Shovel and shut up. Well, before we before we head out, uh, noting both of your, your vitriolic reactions to Wally and everything that it stands for, <laughs> are there any are there any films that you see as being indicative of
2: what the future might look like? That might be a good juxtaposition to Wally. This one I like for some particular reasons of, of its vision of the future, though I'm not, I, I think in some ways is more realistic. And that's Demolition Man, which I think is a really <laughs> underrated movie. I'm, gonna, I'm totally serious about this. I think this is a movie that I actually thought a little bit anyway about what, what an actual future society might look like, all the weird things. like Just one example, the, the use of the, the, the commercial jingles as radio songs. That could happen, right? That's a weird cultural spontaneous order type thing that could happen. And I thought that movie was really creative in some ways that it imagined the future. So, so you know, if you want to see a better movie about, about the future, Demolition Man's better than Wally.
1: Okay.
0: Paul, do you have anything that, uh, that strikes you as more likely?
1: I like the Star Wars movies precisely because they show that junk will be used in the future. <laughs> that the Millennial Falcon, you know, it's not the latest up-to-date spaceship, yes. but you may you jerry rig it, you keep it going. That's what the world. I I think uh, science fiction. It tends to misrepresent the future because it assumes that at a future moment, everything will look the same. Everything will be at the same stage of development at a future moment. It misses the whole point about sunken capital, which is so true about economics, that at any given moment, you got the newest stuff, you got the regular stuff, and you got a lot of old stuff that people keep going because it's not time to junk it.
2: Well, the problem I, I, with most science fiction is that the, that the authors have no clue about social science. That's the biggest problem. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I think that that's a fine button to put on this particular podcast. There will be junk, uh, which I will, <laughs> I will be turning into a coffee mug and uh, bumper stickers for my, my future uh, uh, draft Paul Cantor for Senate campaign uh, that I'm actively working <laughs> Anything on. Anything but that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, it was a pleasure. Uh, as always, I'm smarter for having spoken to you. We appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtube.com slash econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.